and welcome to Queer as Folk Tales by Stories of Scotland. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then this is something a wee bit different, but something that's very close to our hearts. I'm Jenny. And I'm Annie. And for new listeners, welcome to our wonderful wee podcast. We're retelling some of our favourite Scottish folklore with a rainbow twist in honour of LGBT History Month. And we hope that there's something for everyone to enjoy in this little mini-series. Warning, unlike our standalone episodes, this series runs in order. So this is the first of three episodes where our story begins. But make sure you listen to the rest of them in sequence. This series is funded by the Edwin Morgan Trust Second Life Awards. Edwin Morgan was a wonderful gay Scottish poet and the first Scots Macar. His work has inspired us and his words are weaved throughout the podcast. We are so thrilled to be making this mini-series. Over the last few years making Stories of Scotland podcast, we have done vast research into all the strange corners of Scottish mythology. And now, in Queer as Folk Tales, we are weaving many different tales together to make a proud rainbow tapestry of surreal sea stories. We both love legends and lore. And lesbians! Yay! (laughs) We really do. Folklore is the sea to our dolphin. (laughs) It is the barley in our broth. I don't know what noise barley and broth makes. (laughs) And it's a massive part of Scottish culture. Legends are written into the landscape. Myths rise from Scots and Gaelic traditions like smoke from a peat fire. They give us an understanding of our collective identity, who we are as a people, and what values we hold close. Yes, folklore is constantly evolving. With every retelling, a story changes with the times. Queer as Folktales is light-hearted, great fun. We really hope you enjoy it. Our story begins under the broad, untrustworthy skies of Scapa Flow. Listeners, I hope you've got your sea legs on, because we are out at sea, rocking gently in a fishing boat. We join a young queen, Mary, as she hauls up a lobster pot against the resistance of the sea. She doesn't notice the changing of the wind, and she doesn't notice the gulls flying in from the sea in search of shelter on the land. She doesn't notice these things, because at this precise point in time, her arms are really starting to feel the burn of the creel on the other end of the line. She is heaving it up in synchronisation with Billy the Fisher, the old sea dog who often showed up as an extra crew member on the boat. Her pa had already been diving, collecting a bounty of scallops from the ocean floor, and so he sat watching, happily exhausted. The bounty of scallops also sat watching, Big shells the size of Mary's hand, piled in the back of the boat. Her pa was known as Ian the Diver. I'm sure you could all guess why. He'd been taught the trade by Billy the Fisher, one of the oldest fishers left on Orkney. The fishing days were less than they had been. Usually they just took out the boat for tourists on nature-watching trips now. But on this particular day, they had no bookings, and as the island restaurants were always looking for local seafood... 
they went back to the old ways. As she hauled up the creole, Mario was picturing the day people would know her by a nautical name. Perhaps Fishnet Mary or Old Rubber Rod. <laughs> ah, but you see, the thing about nicknames in the Orkney Isles is you don't make them for yourself. Other folks decide that for you. As the creel she was dragging up broke the surface of the water, she noticed that the lobster pot had an unexpected addition. A shock of nerves ran through her at the sight of it. By the time the creel was landed, she was prepared for the argument she would be having with her father. They inspected the catch, one of partial devastation. There was one lobster, proudly in his armour of dark blue, the colours of the deep sea. It was guardedly raising its claws in anticipation of a fight. The gorgeous, feisty lobster had an entourage of two crabs. Well, almost two crabs. One was intact and the other one was a bit of a sorry sight. A casualty to a common foe. You see, clinging to the creole with slick tentacles was a wily octopus. It had been using the trap as a seafood buffet and had already pinched two claws from one of the imprisoned crabs. And this is where the disagreement began. Oh, we'll be having calamari tonight then. Her pa stepped up and disentangled the octopus from the creole, chucking it into a bucket by itself. But Mary protested. Oh, we can't cook calamari right. We don't have the knack of it. We always overcook it till it's as chewy as an old tyre. Oh, it's just not worth it. Let's set this one free, pa. Oh, wish lass. We'll set it free and it'll be straight back into our creels in no time. Helping itself to our lobsters, our profits. Ugh, there's no time for this. Those clouds are looking something fierce. We better get a hurry. Behind them, Billy the fisher had already quietly banded the lobster and crab and popped them into their crates. As he did so, the waters below him began to churn and he listened to the sooch of the sea. Aye, they used to say, as the sea doth thus grow, farewell to fair weather for a while. Now we just say, it's a wee bit rough, don't we? He chuckled half to himself and half to the creatures below, lucky enough not to be with them on the boat. Their rugged crew hurried themselves to bring the boat into harbour. They raced against the weather, which was stirring up more vicious, dangerous waves. The storm had come quickly almost too fast. The white horses were charging to the shore and the rain lashed furiously against them by the time they were in the harbour. Just before they docked the boat, Mary grabbed the rogue octopus out of its bucket. She felt its tentacles wrapping around her hand, pulling her close to tell her something urgent. However, there was just a bit too much octo-suking to make out the message. She stealthily peeled off the slippery tentacles and chucked it back into the sea. Let the wee tentacled beast have its freedom. Ah, <laughs> your taste aft hearted for the sea, lass. Billy the fisher chuckled at her from under his sodden woolen hat. He'd worn the same cap for as long as Mary knew him, and longer than that still. It was more whole than hat at this point, but it was as much a part of Billy the fisher as the sea was. Distracted by the raging storm, her father hadn't noticed her espionage to free the octo-captive, and with a wink from Billy the fisher... She knew her secret was safe. Now docked, the crew loaded the shellfish crates onto her pa's van. The stock is best fresh, so he was getting ready to drive round all the restaurants straight away. 
Be careful in the storm, Pa, Barry shouted over the wind to her father as he got into his van. Ach, dinny fash, lass, I've got fair wheel drive and some cracking windscreen wipers. He smiled and closed the door. Mary and Billy the fisher hurried up to her folks' house for supper. Mary's wee dog, Alan, was waiting for them when they arrived, excitedly wagging his little tail. Her mam lifted them a couple of bowls of steaming broth. Mary didn't know how her mam could always have broth for them, as she worked harder than anyone on land or sea, but Mary wasn't complaining. Her mam fussed over Billy the fisher. You were too old for the sea when you were teaching Ian. Is it really safe for you to be out on the boat, Billy? She fretted, and like clockwork, Billy the fisher responded. I'm just there to make up the numbers for the health and safety. You know I'm a fool for the rules. Ach, I retire next year and finally get myself a cat. This exchange had been a staple of the fishing trips for many years now. Billy lived a few houses down, was often over for his supper, and already had two cats, as he had already retired twice. A chorus of thunder rumbled over their wee house. The storm was starting to get worryingly wild outside. Alan the terrier predictably hid under the table. The four of them spent the evening huddled round the fire, sipping on tea. Billy the fisher told tales of his time at sea. He talked of waves the size of mountains, seeing bearded blue men just below the surface, and mermaids perched on rocks, singing their seductive songs. Many Mary had heard before, but each retelling was slightly more stormy than the last. The waves always a few feet higher, and the mythological creatures always a bit more real. But in the silence between tales, a tense anxiety arose in the house, in all the houses by the sea. In storms like this, it's as though the weather brings back the ghosts of old fishers, their warnings carried on the wind. Eventually, Mary's pa returned home, drenched from the storm. Oh, it's a rough night out there. I've no seen it this bad in years, he muttered forebodingly as he sat to eat his well-deserved broth. And outside, the storm raged on. Mother, I can hear a baby crying out there in the sea. Is it drowning or dying? No, no, my lamb, that's not what you hear. It's only a seal. Go to sleep, never fear. The next day was one of peace and quiet, an unearthly calm. All night, Mary had lain in a half-sleep, sure she could hear a voice calling through the lashing rain. As she lay, straddling the realms of consciousness, her whole being felt as though it were nothing but water carried on a distant current. When she awoke in the morning, she was disappointed not to find herself washed up on some desert island, the waves lapping at her toes. Instead, she had Alan licking her feet, desperate to go out for a walk on the beach. The sun was newly risen and the day was fresh and bright. Mary loved the beach. 
walking along the edge of the tide looking for sea glass or some weirdly shaped driftwood. She had once found a piece of driftwood that looked just like Annie Lennox sneezing and had given it to her mum to put on the mantelpiece. Alan was busy trying to eat the waves, snarling and yapping at their gentle breaking. He had simple pleasures. But soon, Mary realised that it wasn't the waves Alan was popping off at. He would yap at almost anything. A dead crab, an aggressive looking piece of seaweed, or even sometimes his own paw prints. But the storm had seemingly washed up something more sensational than even a piece of seaweed with Viking mentality. From afar, Mary was certain it was a seal. She ran towards the creature, hoping that Alan hadn't picked a fight with a distressed sea mammal. But as she got closer, something seemed off about the creature. Its outline was blurred against the water. Her eyes couldn't quite make out where it ended and the sea began. As she approached, the creature looked less and less seal-like and more and more human. Only a few feet from it, Mary was unsure whether it was alive or dead, but one step closer and she could hear its breathing, slow and deep, in perfect harmony with the tide. And yet, she still couldn't quite tell what it was. From hidden behind her legs, Alan gave a timid growl. All of a sudden, the beast turned to look at her, with the face of a beautiful young woman. Peculiar, clumpy fabrics and shades of greys and blues clung to her body. Their eyes locked, and Mary found herself shocked that she ever thought this poor woman could have looked like a sea mammal. Her words caught in her throat as she gazed at the woman, so wet and cold, her skin glistening with salt water, so pale it was almost blue. Mary couldn't move. The sound of the waves fell quiet. It was as if they were underwater or under a spell. A sharp whiff from Alan snapped Mary back into the realms of reality. Oh, you must be freezing your fingers off. How long have you been out here? Mary exclaimed. Disorientated, the blue-eyed woman looked down at her fingers as if she were surprised she still had them too. Mary tore off her jacket and gently wrapped it around the woman's shoulders. Alan, no longer scared, pranced excitedly around at the prospect of a new friend. The woman looked confused and frightened. What happened to you? Mary asked. The woman looked down at her sodden clothes. She opened and closed her mouth, but the words didn't come out. I, I think I should take you to a doctor, Mary reassured the woman, but the words didn't calm her at all. The mysterious washed-up woman opened her mouth and out flowed the most sublime sounds of the sea. Baffled, Mary was uncertain as to what had just happened. Is that Norwegian? Are, are you from a boat? Iceland? The woman responded sorrowfully. Alan delightedly responded with Mary, however, like the woman, was utterly lost for words. She reached out and Mary gently took her hands in her own. The fingers were icy cold. Mary rubbed them gently, trying to share her warmth. The panic Mary had felt, urging her to act fast to save this strange woman, began to ebb. And then the stranger tried to speak for a third time. I come from the ancient depths of the North Sea, 
I swim with mermaids and visit giants in caves. I am the ocean, my people are the sea. In our sacred language, we are revered as Arf, Arf, Arf. In your tongue, I am a Arf, Arf, Arf. My name is Sinead, and I am a Selkie. Arf! Mari was awestruck. Was this woman really saying she was a Selkie? Maybe this poor soul was suffering from some kind of disorientation or pneumonia or shock. Mary had heard many stories of Selkies. They would drag sailors to their death and eat their flesh, ripping their skin from their bones and drinking their salty blood. And this woman, well, she just seemed to be a bit lost on the beach. But a Selkie? That was the stuff of fairy tales. Well, dear listeners, we've read about Selkies in the oldest Norse and Scots stories. A Selkie is half seal, half human. In the ocean, they take the form of a seal, and on land, they take the guise as a human. Now, their true home is in the deep, inky seas of the Scottish coasts. But, just like seals, they must come on land to mate and find love. Well, young Fisher Mary didn't know what to make of this surreal silky woman, or what to believe. And so... She solved this problem in the way her folks have solved problems for centuries. She invited her back for some broth. And much broth was had, as our washed-up Selkie was exceptionally hungry. And because hospitality was in her nature, Mary ended up inviting Sinead to stay in their guest room. And do you know what happens when a fisher invites a half-seal into their home, Annie? Something fishy? You can't even imagine. It was a fish feast. Delightful Selkie Sinead became a common feature in the kitchen. Mary's family enjoyed the help and taught the new fish lover all their best recipes, from fish pie to cullen skink. Things seemed to be going wonderfully. Happily ever after, you could say. That is until one day when Mary invited Sinead out in the boat. At the suggestion... Sinead became overcome with a deep sadness, and looking out to the sea, revealed her deepest secret. While in human form, I am unable to return to the sea. Also, I can't swim. These silly matchstick legs are useless compared to my powerful seal tail. I know the sea only as a seal. The day I awoke on the beach, my sealskin was gone, missing. I, I thought that you may have taken it. That's how these things usually go, and that's why I went with you. But these last few days, I can feel what we have is pure and not tainted with deceit. Instead... I think it has been stolen from me by someone unknown. My beautiful, spectacular sealskin was my key to the waves, the portal to underwater palaces. Without it, I'm like an oyster without a shell. Ugh. 
I cannot stray far from the bay in which my skin was lost, else I will lose the very essence of myself as well. Mary could see her friend's pain, loss and longing, and so over the next few days she tried her very best to cheer her up. She showed Sinead the wonders of dry land and human legs. She brought her the best experiences of the on-land mammal, such as climbing deep inside ancient burial cairns and scrambling on stunning sea cliffs. And when Sinead would become weary from journeying away from the bay, they would return home and scroll through TikTok for hours. They wondered, they lounged and they laughed, but there was always something that didn't quite feel right. And so, as time passed, Sinead stayed on the land and Mary went out to sea. But they spent the evenings together late into the night. So, am I right in thinking that this is the classic tale of the sailor and the selkie? Uh, sort of. Okay, so what happens next? Well, they almost fall in love, of course. Jenny, that doesn't make any sense. How can they almost fall in love? Well, it would have been a wonderful and pure love, but when love and folklore cross paths, it inevitably leads on a perilous journey. Okay. But it doesn't make this any less precious, Annie. This is the kind of almost love that only washes up on the beach once every hundred years. They are so happy. So much so that they both seem to forget that in mythology... We almost always find some vengeful god or evil monster, and that these tales, well, more than not, they end in dreadful tragedy and painful death. Aye, but perhaps they are too besmitten to listen to the warnings of the old ballads. I think you might be right, Annie. You see, you can't quite fall in love when you haven't faced the true reality of your fairy tale. But nevertheless, these two are inseparable. On sunny days, they scour the shore for shells to make questionable jewellery to sell on Etsy. And on rainy, windy nights, they sit and read Edwin Morgan poems to each other in front of the fire. Soon they rolled in a night, when they were shucking scallops together, and Mary felt her knife less steady in her hand. She felt soft and wobbly, like the scallop flesh. She turned to her new best friend, perhaps her something more than best friend, and confessed. Selkie Sinead, I have something to tell you. I, um, I think I'm falling in love with you. Selkie Sinead put down her scallop and took Mary's hands in hers, her eyes filled with tears. I wish I could say the same for you, Mary, but I am not here in all of my being. I cannot love you as I am not whole. My sealskin remains stolen from me. Some cruel, evil being has taken it. And until I am reunited with it, I can never be truly myself. And so, I can never truly love you. The words hit Mary like a ton of peat. And as a tear rolled down her selkie's peeled cheek, Mary knew what she had to do. She reassured her friend. Selkie Sinead, I will find your sealskin for you. I will go wherever I have to go, and I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do to return what has been stolen from you. 
I want nothing more than for us to be together, and I'll do anything I can to make that happen. At this proclamation, Selkie Sinead burst into floods of tears. You would do that for me? Oh, it will be dangerous. It takes a powerful creature to take a selkie skin for anything but love. I don't even know where to start looking. But Mary did. She put Alan on his lead and headed down to old Billy the Fisher's house. If there was anyone who would know where to start her search, it was him. Ah, I wondered when you'd be coming, lass. Come in, I've got some broth boiling. And so in went our young fisher. And over a bowl of broth, she explained all about how she had fallen in love with a selkie, the missing sealskin, and her promise to return it to her love. Billy the fisher ate silently for a while, chewing over the tail. Eventually he said... Aye, the myths keep their own secrets, and they have a lot of them. You'll be wanting to speak to the fairies over on the mainland, Kithness. They always have the gossip. They'll know who's taken your silky's skin. The fairies, Mary exclaimed. Don't be ridiculous. Ridiculous? You're in love with a silky for goodness sake. Of course there's fairies. The mythological world doesn't revolve around you, you know. Oh, I've seen many a fairy in my days, so I have. But you be careful now, lass. The fairies are tricksy beings. I lost much of my youth to them. Not that I mind that much. It was a, a cracking time. But I didn't have a selkie love waiting for me at home. You'll want to be letting them know it was me that sent you. When you find them, ask for a Douglas of long legs. But where will I find these long-legged fairies? Mary questioned. By the brochs, of course. Flow country is awful flat. Not enough hills for the fairies to live in, and so they live in the ancient brochs. Head for Bruin Broch. That's where you'll find old Douglas. You'll want to get going soon, lass. Oh, and take this with you as well. It'll do you good to bring a gift for the fairies. Billy the fisher reached under his sink and pulled out a few bottles of his famous home-brewed turnip wine. He handed them to Mary and gave her a solid pat in the back. Good luck, lass. The things we do for love, eh? Huh? Give Douglas of long legs my regards. And so Mary prepared her wee car, ready to journey to the ferry which would carry her and Alan across the waters of the Pentland Firth in search of her love's skin. Selkie Sinead bid her farewell and good luck. She gifted her with some of her handmade shell jewellery that, surprisingly, had not sold on Etsy. With the shells jangling around her neck, the bottles of homebrew, and an almost love as strong as a hundred trows, Mary set off for the ferry, ready to set sail into her new adventure. And that was the end of episode one of Queer's Folk Tales, The Such of the Sea. We really look forward to sharing the next episode with you on Sunday the Fairy Broch party. It's the best thing I think we've ever written. It was really, really fun to make and it explores some really dark and intense mythology of Scotland. So I can't wait for that one. And I hope that you'll stay with us on this journey, on this love story, on this adventure through legends. Thank you all so much for listening. 
Slanjava. Slanjava.